The difference between predictive and generative is that for generative, you're actually creating new content, so to speak. So obviously, it's been highly, highly popularized by GPT and their chat. GPT interface. The idea there is when you ask it a question, it will create entirely new text. There's technologies and packages that will create entirely new images, but you're not necessarily predicting or forecasting anything. Welcome to the Unleashing AI podcast, hosted by Pavel Fakanov. Join us as we speak with industry experts and explore the wonders of innovative, custom-built AI and how it can help grow your business, whilst also delving into the latest developments in the fields of machine learning and artificial intelligence. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Unleashing AI podcast. I'm your host, Pavel Fakanov, and joining me today is Justin Swansburg, the VP of Applied AI and Data Science at DataRobot. And... Justin is data science and machine learning professional specializing in solving business problems using value-driven AI and machine learning. He's also a speaker and writer passionate about educating other people about AI. Justin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Looking forward to it. Yeah, likewise. Happy to have you here. Yeah, Justin, let's just quickly start with your background. Why don't you just spend like a couple of minutes talking about your work experience? How did you start in AI? All of that. Yeah, absolutely. Funny enough, I actually started out in consulting, believe it or not. And during my consulting years, I got really interested and involved with causality and causal modeling, which is quite different. But over time, it definitely got me exposed to machine learning especially over the last, let's say, five or 10 years when it's really taken off. So I decided to make the jump from causal modeling and econometrics over to more modern machine learning and predictive analytics. So I joined DataRobot about six years ago. And DataRobot sells in automated machine learning, ML experimentation, and ML production end-to-end AI platform. And I've been here ever since working with hundreds, if not thousands of different clients, helping them take all this interesting ML technology and then actually apply it to their business. That's amazing. And I think your experience actually going to be like super interesting for our topic today, just discussing generative AI, predictive AI, differences between those, and also discussing the way businesses actually can extract value from using both like generative AI and predictive AI. Absolutely. I think most businesses know that there is value in generative AI, but we're so early that they're still figuring out what they actually use it for. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And yeah, they're definitely going to help people <laughs> to get a better idea today, how you actually can extract value from generative AI. But yeah, Justin, before we actually dive into details, why don't we just define, let's say, really high level for people who don't really know the difference, what is generative AI? What is predictive AI? All of that. Absolutely. Let's start with predictive AI since that came first. And it's quite simply when you build a model to actually forecast some outcome or event into the future. You can think about forecasting sales for a store. You could think about predicting how likely someone is to default on a loan or how likely a shipment is to arrive late. Anything that you could guess is going to be predictive. The difference between predictive and generative is that for generative, you're actually creating new content, so to speak. So obviously, it's been highly, highly popularized by GPT and their chat 
GPT interface. The idea there is when you ask it a question, it will create entirely new text. There's technologies and packages that will create entirely new images, but you're not necessarily predicting or forecasting anything. So a really good example could be summarization. It could be write me a poem, like I'm sure you've seen, or build me an image in the style of Monet and whatever else you might ask it. Yeah, it's a really good example, I think. And most people actually don't realize that in the past, most business actually were using predictive AI, and that's where actually people got the most value. And I would say we're right now in the transition where people actually super excited about generative AI and actually finding a lot of business applications for that. It wasn't actually the case, let's say, five years ago. Five years ago, almost like no one was using like generative AI for extracting like business value. I think that's right. And it's gotten a heck of a lot better just over the last few, even weeks, but months and years beforehand, even though a lot of this technology isn't really new, it's certainly advanced to the point where you can now apply it to most any business problem and get real value. Yeah, really good point. And I really liked your explanation, to be honest, of the differences between generative AI and predictive AI in a really simple way. And maybe we also can give a few, let's say, you already given like quite a few examples about the way you can apply predictive AI, about the way you can apply generative AI, but you're also working with a lot of businesses, data robots. Maybe you can just give us a couple of really interesting examples of the way you actually saw we can apply a predictive AI or generative AI to extract business value. Yeah, absolutely. So I spend a lot of my time thinking about the intersection of those two concepts. So while they're different, there's certainly overlap. There are generative problems that leak into the predictive space and predictive problems that you can actually use or leverage generative AI to improve. For me, I'll go through a couple of examples. The probably most popular right now is just simply using generative AI to produce code to almost serve as a co-pilot or assist. So we've been working a lot there. Of course, people like Microsoft with their co-pilot, Google or something similar, they've really been at the forefront here. And I think it's a tremendous way to use this technology to improve your productivity. It's not gonna necessarily replace engineering roles or data scientist roles, but it's gonna help you write really high quality code really quick. So that's probably the simplest example. Then the next one is probably data enrichment. At least that's what I've been calling it. And this is more, it lives in that intersection between the two. So for predictive problems, if you're going to go ahead and let's say forecast for a hospital, how likely patients are to readmit after they've been discharged, since of course, as a nurse or a doctor, you'd prefer to treat them appropriately and have them not return back to the hospital, you might want to leverage some generative AI to actually better understand their diagnoses while they're in the hospital. So if you have all of these lab tests, you've got the result of all of these different medications that they're on or prescriptions that they're taking, you could actually run that through something like GPT or a large language model to get more context around what are the potential symptoms of whatever this diagnosis is, or what are some of the comorbidities for this particular patient. And that's, that's related to a patient that the model is sort of a learn in the background you can use that extra information to augment your data set and then treat the rest of the problem like a straightforward, supervised, classical machine learning problem. So we can talk a lot more about that. That's sort of the second category, data enrichment. And the last one I've been really interested in is something that we've been calling knowledge bases, where one of the current limitations of these large language models is that they have to be trained oftentimes on publicly available data. 
And once you scrape or crawl the web, time keeps going. So most of these larger models have been trained up through something like the end of 2021, which means they actually don't have access to information after that. And there are many ways around that. But for the most part, these models are static. So they've been trained. They understand whatever information was passed to them up through the end of 2021. So the question is, how can you now take those models and apply it to a particular business where their data may be confidential, it may be proprietary, and it may be more recent? The idea of a knowledge base is to save down all of your data and then leverage these large language models so that when a user asks a question about their data, you combine your own data, you grab the relevant excerpts, whatever's most closely associated with a question, pass that excerpt over to something like GPT to get a plain English or human natural language response to the question. So a great example of that could be you work in a customer success function. You've got all of these different support tickets in a platform like Jira or Zendesk. Rather than combing through all of them and understanding what is the status of a bug or a feature request, you can now ask a chat system, my company or my customer is company X, what's the latest with their bug? Or do they have any outstanding bugs? And the system is now smart enough to first go to your internal knowledge base, find anything relevant to customer A, grab all of that information, pass it to something like ChatGPT, and then have the GPT engine distill it back for you. Yeah, Justin, this are really good examples. I definitely would love to spend more time talking about both, about data enrichment and about knowledge bases. And I think knowledge bases are actually one of the most common use cases right now, because it's like most people who actually reach out to us, they want to build something connected with a custom knowledge base in like one way or another. Like one example, as you mentioned, it can be like customer support system. Another example is basically using something like ChatSpot AI. For people who don't know what ChatSpot AI basically is, it's basically ChatGPT connected to your CRM data. So you can start asking questions, what's the current status of that specific deal? How many customers I have from that specific industry? Or let's say you want to create a summary of the meeting. Or let's say you want to send a follow-up email. And you basically can get access to all of that just using really simple conversational interface. Yeah, that's exactly right. Another good example that we're working on now, my team of data scientists needs to support all of our clients. And they can ask sometimes fairly technical questions about machine learning, about our platform. So we have all of this rich question and answer data packed away in our emails, packed away in Slack. You can imagine curating all of that into a knowledge base. So when a new question comes in, you go find all of the relevant question and answers pass them back to GPT, and you get a really crisp, clean, succinct response that you can reply back to the client with. Yeah, a really good example. And again, DataRobot is a relatively big company, but imagine what's actually happening in Fortune 500 companies. <laughs> like If they actually had a tool like that, I think it would be like tremendous value. Yeah, I was actually just talking to a few folks here the other day, and we really believe there's no reason that every single company, full stop, couldn't adopt one or more knowledge bases. It's just such a wide-ranging application. We used to think something similar for AI in general and predictive machine learning, but truthfully, not every company was ready for it. Nowadays, though, with knowledge bases, as long as you have even a little bit of data that's internal, you can get a heck of a lot of value out of it. Yeah, that's the case. That's the case 100%. And Justin, maybe I would like to chat a little bit more because 
the use case that we are talking about is pretty much obvious to everyone. Like everybody on the market understands it can bring tremendous value. It's not really difficult to implement. At least like it has a lot of details and maybe pitfalls, but high level, it's not really difficult to implement. Let's say you have your knowledge base, you have a retrieval system, and after that, you have GPT-4 API or ChatGPT API. And that's pretty much it. And you have a lot of companies right now actually building kind of the same tool. So would be really interested in your take, what's going to happen with the market, what you can see is missing right now on the market of, let's say, custom knowledge bases. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this lately. And you're right. But just to add a little bit more context, when you say it's easy, it actually only takes a handful of lines of code to replicate that entire system, which just speaks to the progress, which is incredible. And it's only going to get easier to do. The issue, I think, is there's a difference between someone like you or I prototyping one of these knowledge bases on our local machine and actually getting it installed as a production-grade app within some large company. So I think a lot of the stumbling blocks are the following. One is that most companies don't yet allow their employees to actually send data, especially sensitive or confidential data, outside of their network to an endpoint like OpenAIs for GPT. So there's a lot of work to be done to make sure that either we leverage models locally, you download smaller versions that are open source, and then run them within your firewall, within your infrastructure, or we go back to legal and figure out ways like Azure is doing right now with OpenAI and private VPNs to make sure that the data is safe and the transfers actually, they adhere to all the company's guidelines. And it sounds simple, but it's actually a really, really big one because most companies have just turned it off, so to speak, for now. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Other issues that we've been running into, it's sort of the ease of use, usability, and how out of the box the solution is. It's funny because the problems are less technical. They're less focused on the actual LLM behind the scenes. And it has everything to do with how you surface that information to the end customer. So it's one thing for us to have an app running on our terminal, and then we share it with someone. It only works when our computer's physically turned on. And it's another thing entirely to have an application stood up that has the right role-based access controls, the right permissioning, the right high availability, the right single sign-on, everything that you would need to get this approved and blessed by IT. So I do think that companies are going to win are the ones that make it really user-friendly and don't just end with the knowledge base, but end with a user application where it's really easy for them to submit their internal data, create that knowledge base, and then quickly ask and get questions answered in an application. Really good point. And I really like what you mentioned about security because I think for enterprise companies, it's actually one of the biggest concerns right now. And as you mentioned, you basically have like two different alternatives, like either you're using GPT-4 API or any other API you can get, or you're using self-hosted models. But right now, you're actually losing in quality a little bit in this case, in case you're using self-hosted models. But you're pretty much getting like way more security because you know for sure it's not leaving your server, your machine, all of that. And anyway, as you mentioned, it has a lot of things you need to solve, like integrations. How easy to use is your application? How secure is your application? But I would say most applications not connected to AI or large language models actually selling to enterprise in some way actually have to solve the same problems in some way. But because the market is really hot right now, I think it's really going to be a bloodbath 
to be honest. A lot of companies right now, they're just building exactly the same tool and everybody understands the problem space really well. Because we just chatted, you understand, okay, we have problem with security, we understand the problem is, let's say, the quality, we understand the problem is easy to use, all of that. And a lot of people actually understand the same problem. I think you're right. It's staggering how many companies are exploring this space right now. And I mentioned earlier on that my background's in economics. I do think as far as where the market's heading, there's going to be way more consumer surplus, meaning us as end consumers are going to extract way more of the benefit from this huge trend as everyone races to the same thing. There's going to be a lot of competitive pressure. The product's going to get better and better. There's going to be downward price pressure. So it's going to get cheaper and cheaper. We're going to run these things more quickly. They'll be more accurate. They'll be smaller. But because there's so many people doing the same thing, it's going to be harder for anyone to win the market and it's going to be easier for consumers. So who knows what will happen? Obviously, I suspect there'll be so many people with so many good options and consumers will have so many alternatives. That's really think that's going to win. Yeah, makes sense. Really good point. Maybe I would like to jump a little bit back to another use case you previously mentioned, which is data enrichment. And just talk a little bit more about different ways to actually solve businesses applying this to extract business value. I really like the example about forecasting for diseases. And I also have one more example from my side, which is basically using generative AI to generate entire data sets. Because what happens sometimes, you want to solve a problem, but you don't really have a data set. Let's say five years ago, your only way was to get like a bunch of people, give them instructions and ask them to label the data for you. That was the only way like five years ago or let's say finding some open source data set online, which is not always doable. What you actually can do right now is just take ChatGPT or GPT-4, explain your problem formulation and ask it to create a data set for you. Again, it's not always going to create the entire data set, but in case you have some basic inputs, you have some examples you can use GPT-4 or ChatGPT to enrich your data set and get to the point where you actually can build really high performance model. And it's going to achieve way better quality than it would achieve, let's say, two years ago. It is remarkably good at creating synthetic data sets for most verticals, most domains. So absolutely, I'd encourage people to test that out, especially if they don't have access to as much training data as they need, for sure. To answer the first question, though, about data enrichment, generally, when you go to build a predictive modeling pipeline, there's two key components to start. The first is that these actual algorithms, the ML models, they accept data or they expect data in a certain format. So you've got to run your input data through a whole bunch of what we call pre-processing steps. You need to format it in a way that the model will accept. And then the second part, of course, is running that transformed data or processed data through a model, something like a linear regression or an XGBoost model or a neural net, whatever it might be. And I do think that there's a lot of opportunity in the pre-processing piece, the first half of that pipeline, to leverage generative AI. And a couple examples that we've been working through with clients are leveraging multimodal data. So diverse data types like free text or images or geospatial location-based data. And you can imagine pulling out information and getting way more explainability in your end models by using LMs. So I'll give you another example here. We were working through some AVM models. This is where you want to automatically value a property, a home, whatever it might be, some type of real estate. 
you've got a whole bunch of data on the house, the property attributes, and there's typically images as well. And there's a lot of packages that will actually featureize the image where you can go from a raw image and the pixels and the RGB color codes to get to, here's how much I think this home is worth. The problem though, is that with only a few data points, it's a little bit difficult. You tend to overfit the model. And more importantly, it is really hard to explain. What is it about this picture that makes your model predict a higher or lower price? So one thing we've been doing with some of the real estate clients is actually using off-the-shelf LLMs to explain the images. And it's quite simple to say, here is the image. Can you give me a detailed description of this house? And it might say something like, it is a two-story white house, Victorian style, and it has a large covered porch. Of course, that text can now be fed directly into the models. And it's way more helpful for the end user to say, hey, the model's increasing the expected home price because there's a covered porch. And on top of that, you can actually ask specific questions about the images as well. Like, does this home have a chimney or is there a front yard? And it will give you back yes and no answers, which you can include as additional features in your model. That way, when you're looking at some type of explainability technique, like feature impact, it'll say, we're actually predicting that the home will sell for more because it has X many chimneys or because it has a large front yard. So it makes it really clear how the model's making its decisions. It's a really good example, a really good example. And once you actually touched on the topic of multimodal AI, maybe I would like to ask another question about the way you actually can see that specific space basically progressing. And you already mentioned, okay, we can definitely see a large language model can support multimodal input in the future, can output data in multiple formats, which you actually can see right now. But anyway, would be interested in your thoughts about the future of multimodal AI, how it's going to progress, what's going to happen in the next two years, five years. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we're going to see way more unstructured data and way less structured data, especially for ML use cases, mostly because of how easy it is to leverage something like GPT to go from unstructured to structured. So a few examples, as far as the feature engineering or pre-processing I mentioned goes, it's actually not too difficult to go from an image to a textual description to structured input, like, is there a chimney? And you can also go backwards, which is even more interesting, saying, hey, I know a description about the house, generate me an image. And then you can use the generated image to pass to your modeling pipeline. The other thing in terms of why there'll be so much more unstructured data and way fewer relational databases used in ML is that I think if you can somehow convert everything to text, these models are really good at extracting the relevant words or phrases from the text when you need to. So a good example of the house could be rather than having a column saved in a relational database for every attribute, just have a free text description of everything you know about it. And it could be as simple as in plain English, this is a 40-year-old house built in 1980. It is built in brick and has this type roof, these type shingles in this neighborhood, this far away from the school, whatever other information you may have. Single text document. And then the models, I think, will be smart enough to actually comb through that and extract any related or any helpful information. And it could be something like named entity recognition, where I think these models are especially good. It can go through and easily say, pull out any information mentioned in this text string 
about the roof or about the property or about their square footage or about the bedrooms. And then it will create all of these structured columns on the fly. But you don't need to save them down in an expensive database for now. Yeah, it's a really good example. And yeah, Justin, what I really like about you, to be honest, is you definitely understand AI. You definitely know a lot of technical things, but at the same time, you know the way to provide really simple examples about the way people actually can use it to extract business value, which is super valuable. Yeah, part of the job. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Okay, yeah, Justin, I think we are almost out of time, but definitely loved all the examples, specifically loved our conversation about knowledge bases and what's going to happen with the space and the way businesses actually can use knowledge bases right now and the difficulties they're going to face. But yeah, it was super valuable. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast and it was amazing. Happy to be here. Yeah, really appreciate the time. I'll leave you with this one last thought. I do think in terms of the overlap between these two concepts, what we're going to see a heck of a lot more of in the near future is leveraging generative AI and our ability to just talk to technology now to actually speed up the development of predictive AI and then help us interpret it. So I do see a world in which it'll be really simple to say, help me build a home price model using whatever information you can extract from this text. And then in plain English, explain to me how you arrive at each individual prediction. And behind the scenes, we probably won't even realize it, it'll go out and create the appropriate models, run the appropriate analyses, and then distill or synthesize information explaining to us, hey, we actually think because the home has four bedrooms and three baths and is in a community with a really high quality educational system, it's going to sell for 1.1 million. So it really is leveraging both of these technologies. Definitely. Did you think something like that would be possible two years ago? Because I think we saw like huge progress in the last six months. But I personally, even like two years ago, three years ago, wouldn't think that something like that actually could be possible. No, I absolutely do not think it would be emphatically no. Reason being, we've tried to explore a lot of the open source models as well. And so for those that aren't familiar, OpenAI has a model called GPT for all that they've open sourced that has about 7 billion parameters. There's Falcon, a couple of different versions, but one of them has 7 billion parameters and they're quite good but they aren't good enough today to answer the problem I just mentioned, and they're not nearly good enough as GPT-4. So once we get to those levels of accuracy and we can run them quickly, which I do think, according to Sam Altman, is where we're headed, more cheaply, faster, it'll unlock the use case that I just mentioned. Yeah, definitely. Really good point. And I think right now it's just a matter of time because it's not really a secret how to build a model like that. We just need to invest some money, need to invest some time, and yeah, just wait. That's it. Yep. Excellent. Well, again, I appreciate you inviting me on here. Had a blast. Yeah, Justin, really appreciate you coming and definitely a lot of insights. Really enjoyed the conversation. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Pavel. Thanks. The Unleashing AI podcast is brought to you by Unleashing AI. To find out more about Unleashing AI and how innovative, custom-built AI can help your business, visit unleashing.ai. Also, make sure to search for Unleashing AI in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Unleashing AI, thank you for listening.